Well, all right. Well, let's get to it. Today we are continuing in our sermon series called BC, and it stands for Before Christmas, and we're going to look at Jeremiah's vision of hope today. So hopefully you grabbed a program on your way in. There's an outline in there for you to follow along with, fill in the blanks, and of course, as usual, if you're a digital person, you can scan that QR code and follow along with me digitally. Christmas is an exciting time of year. Would we agree? Of course, we have the story of Jesus, we got the nativity scene, we got all of that, but we also have all the lights and the trees, the food. Where's my Christmas cookie lovers out there, right? All right. How about the fruitcake? Anybody like that fruitcake? Ooh, no, right? That's the gift that just keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> we got the decorations, we got the songs, we talked about a little bit about that last week, we got the movies. Right, and of course, and I'm gonna talk to the children in the room. For many of us, our favorite part of Christmas is what, kids? The presents, yeah. So hey, there's a little kid in all of us at some point. So let's reminisce a little bit real quick as we get going into this. Let's look back at what some of the most popular sought after Christmas toys were over the last 90 years. So I'm going back to all of your childhoods here, all right? Let's see if you remember some of these. Way back in the 1930s, this is some of you when you were a kid. You remember these babies right here? The bottle top babies, a buck 89. Yeah. What about for those of you guys who were kids in the 1940s? You remember this one? Slinky. Yeah. How many kids got slinky on Christmas morning? Now, for a lot of you who are, if you're the same age as my parents back in the 1950s, remember this one right here? Roy Rogers and Bullet. Oh, yeah. I know I'm taking you back here. We're going nostalgia today, aren't we? For those of you guys who were kids in the 1960s, how about this one? Light Bright. Yeah, Light Bright. (laughs) Now, for those of you who were born in the 1970s, for, for yes, the Gen X generation, here we go, Nerf ball. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep, I see people nodding their heads. You remember this. Now, if you're, if you're my age and you're a child of the 1980s, glory to God, the best decade that has ever happened, all right, you remember this awesome thing right here. Yes! Woo! Video games, yes! The Atari 2600. Every kid in America was talking about how they had these, it seemed like. Uh, At least at my school, it felt that way. Now, for those of you guys who were kids in the 1990s, you can remember, like, that was the decade that changed everything. And in 1996, there was this massive upheaval in our country for this thing. You remember this one? Tickle Me Elmo. Every night on the Jay Leno show, he was talking about Tickle Me Elmo and on the, the chaos at Target and Walmart. Y'all remember this? It was, it was crazy for Tickle Me Elmo. Now, for those, of you, for those of you guys who were kids in the early 2000s, you might remember this thing right here. Skip it. Every kid in my youth group was wanting to skip it. I didn't even know what these things were, but they were, but they sure did. And for those of you guys who are in your, in your early 20s, 
you might remember this from last decade, Minecraft. Yep. This is what you were buying your grandkids, grandparents last decade, right? Yep. I see kids. Yeah, Minecraft, right? Everything with Minecraft last decade. Children from all these generations would go to toy stores with their parents through the year and say, Mom, Dad, can I get that for Christmas? Right? And all the other toys that that you had. And so they'd wake up on Christmas morning, run down to the front room, and hope to find their desired toy under the tree. Now, the truth is, even for us adults, there's something inside of us that's hoping to get that certain Christmas gift on Christmas morning. But what if, now let's turn it a little bit. What if what we're hoping for at Christmas time is something bigger than a gift? What if what you're hoping for this Christmas is maybe for a relationship to heal? What if you're hoping for your finances to recover? Or maybe you're hoping for a promotion at work. For some of you, you might be just hoping for work at all. What if it, what you're hoping for is a big deal type of thing. As I've talked with people over the years about things, my experience has shown me that the most frustrating thing for people to go through is for them to feel a sense of hopelessness. And I don't know if you've ever sat with somebody who's ever been there or maybe it's been you, but it's amazing at how desperate and discouraged people can be. When you're longing and hoping for something big in life and when it just doesn't seem to be coming to fruition. What happens is hopelessness arises and it can just be a very scary time. And Christmas time is a time where we have hope. We just sang about the hope. It's not a hope in all the festivities. It's not a hope in the gifts, but it's a hope that can change not only our future, but it can change our current situation as well. So in this sermon series, we've been looking at some prophets in the Old Testament During a certain point in Israel's history, it was a time period known as the time of the kings. God appointed prophets who would speak messages to the, to the kings and to the people. And, and you might find this hard to believe, but the vast majority of the time, the people and the kings did not listen to God. I mean, we have no idea what that's like, but, but that's exactly what happened. Consequently, difficult situations would come at the Jews, and they would find themselves often in a complete mess. Two weeks ago, we looked at Micah's prophecy. Last week, we looked at Isaiah's prophecy. Today, we're going to look at Jeremiah. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 1, and you can put your finger on chapter 33, because we're going to go there next. But let me set it up for you. The year is approximately 627 B.C. The northern kingdom has been sacked by Assyria. It's gone. The southern kingdom is Judah. It's still standing, but it's crumbling. Jeremiah is now approximately 17 years old, and God calls him to be a prophet. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, it's also in your outline, God says this to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now imagine receiving this calling of God at 17 years of age. What were you doing at 17? I know for me, 
I was trying to pass high school, wondering what girl was going to show any interest in me. I was flipping burgers for a job at a hamburger stand, and I was driving a brown root beer Volvo with 269,000 miles on it. Preaching in a church was nowhere on my radar screen. And here we see in Jeremiah, he grows into his calling as a prophet. He serves God for 40 years and he preaches a message that's actually not well received by the people of Jerusalem. The message is this. God's coming judgment is coming at you as a result of your disobedience. So Jeremiah experiences apostasy. He experiences idol worship. He experiences moral decay everywhere in Jerusalem. And yet Jeremiah remains faithful to his Lord. And he ends up in a prison cell. And he's beaten. And he goes through all kinds of difficult situations. In fact, you may not know this, but Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet. Why? Well, because of his heart is just broken over the very people that he knows, that he's lived life with, in the very country that he loves and that he's grown up in. And so it's in that prison cell that God gives Jeremiah hope for the future. And look with me, if you would, at Jeremiah chapter 33, starting in verse 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 14 says, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. In those days and at the time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And in that day, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this will be its name. And here's the focus part. The Lord is our righteousness. So here in a prison cell, Jeremiah is given the message. And you can see the big idea I put in your outline here is this. It's that in Jesus, we find hope for the future that changes our present. So Jeremiah brings hope to the people. It's this, God is going to make changes and there will be a better day for Israel in the future. Sounds promising, doesn't it? Now, if you know your biblical history, that when the prophets were all done speaking on behalf of the Lord, God said nothing for 400 years, not even a peep. And we call those the silent years. And it's the time between the Old and the New Testament. And it's during the silent years that there was a remnant of Jews who remained faithful to the Lord's word. They believed the prophets. They believed that the Messiah was going to actually show up one day, someday in the future. So they had hope for this world because of the prophecies. And it's in the midst of what was going on in the time of Jerusalem and everything going on around them that these faithful people trusted God and they had hope. And their hope is what kept them going forward in faith, day in, day out, generation after generation, folks, for 400 years. Now catch that. Our country's only 250 years old or so. 400 years years. And so in Luke's gospel now in the New Testament, we're given the account of God moving. If you will, go ahead and turn to Luke 2 and start with verse 1 with me. It's in your outline. I'm going to read from the New King James Version now. 
Luke chapter two, verse one. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now let's just pause for a second, get this picture. Rome is the, the one world power at this point. Caesar makes a decree. And just imagine, now you have to go back four generations and travel to the place where your great-grandfather was born. So this is Joseph's situation. He's got to go to Bethlehem now. He lives in Nazareth, and he's got to go there for Rome's tax purposes. Now, could you just imagine if this was our world, what that would look like? Every train station, every airport would be mass chaos. And in that day, they didn't have trains and airplanes, folks. How did they travel? By their own two feet and on an animal. And so here's Mary. She's got to go with Joseph, and she is very, very pregnant. And ladies, I'm just going to come right out and say I have no idea how you must feel being nine months pregnant. But I'm just kind of envisioning there ain't nothing enjoyable about this experience. Riding on the back of a donkey for 85 miles. Sounds like, you know, a winner to me, right? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Verse four. So Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now verse six. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, verse seven. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now verse 11. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a savior who is, what is it church? Christ the Lord. So the prophecies have now all taken place. And all of a sudden a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer has been born, Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us to have a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior in our life? Well, if you go back to Jeremiah in verse 33, we see something very, very, very good here. It said that the Lord is our righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Because righteousness isn't really a word that we use much today in our language, unless you're talking to a surfer from Southern California where he's talking about how righteous a surfing wave was, right? Or maybe you watched the, the movie with the, the orange fish and the, and the turtle, right? Righteous, all right, or something like that. But what is righteousness? Well, in your outline, I put it here. Righteousness, what does it mean that Jesus is our Righteousness. This is a truth I hope you can grab today, everybody, in your outline. A righteous person is this, someone who lives completely right with God. <clears throat> so just pause for a moment on this. Survey time. Is there anybody in the room? It's okay. Raise your hand. Is there anybody here today or joining us online? You can raise your hand as well that lives perfectly and completely right with God 100% of the time. Raise your hand. Seeing none and hearing none. Of course not, right? Nobody does. In fact, for some of us, we probably blew this idea up on the way to church today. 
let alone yesterday or this past week, right? I mean, we're all broken. So how is it even possible then in this idea that we could live right with God? Because we're far from perfect. I mean, we strive to do the best we can, but we fail all the time. And in fact, Paul even tells us that that's how we're going to be. Romans 3.10, he says, as it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So with biblical truth in play, how is it even possible to experience being right or righteous before a holy God? Well, the answer is very simple. It's what Jeremiah said. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness, church. Paul says it perfectly to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 31. He says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for who, church? Who does it say? For us. For us. And then here's the why. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So exactly what Jeremiah said. Jesus would be the righteousness of us. Not that we're righteous, because we're not. We're, not, we're far from being perfect. But, but that when, when God looks at us from heaven, he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. And so often we're raised in environments where everyone just wants to point out our faults. Isn't that how it goes, everybody? We, we live in a broken world. We live in a dysfunctional world with dysfunctional families. And it just seems like every time you mess up, somebody's pointing the finger at you. And what we see here in this verse is the exact opposite of what's being told to us. You see, when God looks at us, when you are in Christ, he does not see your sin. He doesn't see all your mistakes. When you are in Christ, what he sees is the righteousness of Christ covering you. And why is that? How is that even possible? It's real simple. Because God has chosen to declare everyone who is in Christ. And that's the key part here. Everyone who is in Christ is righteous because of Jesus. Folks, that's good news this morning. That's good news. And there's an enormous truth in that to get a hold of. And that's that you matter to God. Our sign out there on San Juan Avenue says, people matter. This is exactly the point. People matter to God. So much that he sent Jesus into the world at Christmas time. And scripture says to be sin for us. So that's the deal, folks. And so think of this, right? You can't have Christmas without Easter. What? Yeah. Easter is about us getting what Jesus deserved and Jesus getting what we deserved. So there's an exchange that takes place. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about. So as we move forward in life, this righteousness that's placed on us as believers, it changes our future. Someday when we get to heaven, but it also changes how we can live here on earth right now. And how we can walk in the power of the Holy Spirit each and every day. Through all the turbulence and all the hectic stuff that comes at us. Y'all with me on that? So let's take a look. Number one in your outline. 
Our hope is that we are right with God through Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, it means that no matter how discouraged that you may get in all the areas of life, no matter how defeated you might feel in the things that you struggle with, that no matter how many times you have stumbled and sinned against God, you see in your outline, I have a hope. You have a hope. And in Jesus, we have a hope, church. We have a hope. And it's a hope that declares that we are accepted as God's children, his sons and daughters, and there is nothing that can change that. And Jeremiah prophesied about this hope that Jesus would bring 600 years before Christ was ever born. And so as we roll forward with this truth into our lives. And, and now as a New Testament church, the thing I want to tell you is that if you are in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. This is a hope. This is a hope that promises that God will never leave us or forsake us. Lots of folks will come in and out of your life, but God will always stay constant. This is a hope that will always give you the grace to press forward in faith when you do stumble. Because Lord knows you're going to stumble. It's a hope that is leading all of us to a place where there will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. It will literally be heaven. Our hope is that we are right with God through Jesus, number two in your outline, is that in Jesus we have a Savior who has rescued us and promises us a better future. And this, folks, is the power of hope. And again, if you've ever had a time in your life where you've lost all hope or maybe you've, you've sat with somebody who's felt that way, it's one of the most scary feelings for a person to go through. And when they look at you and there's just not a single glimmer of hope for anything. It's overwhelming. And Christmas is about hope. Back in the 1950s, there was a professor at John Hopkins University by the name of Kurt Richter, and he did an experiment with rats. Now, I'm just going to let you know, if you're an animal lover, don't blame me, okay? But maybe you've heard the story. He, he took wild rats and he took domesticated rats and he put some domesticated rats in a barrel of water and and he'd drop them in there and they would swim a little bit for a few minutes and they would dive down and come up and they would die from drowning he did it a few times with the domesticated rats and the have this, the, the exact same experience and then he took, well, let's try some wild rats who are used to being out in the elements and so he put the wild rats in, in the same situation and he had the same results with just in a few minutes, the, the rats would die. So then he, he took some domesticated rats and he put them in the barrel. And he would take his net and lift them up a little bit. Let them breathe and put them back in. He did it a couple times. And he did with the wild rats. And here's what he found. That when he gave the rats a little bit of time for reprieve, the rats had hope. And they would swim literally for days. And they would not drown because they had a sense of hope. And so he writes, after the elimination of hopelessness, that 
then when we as humans have a glimmer of hope, we can go through incredible adversity to get to the other side and see the bright of day. But when hope is perceived to be shut off, it's not good. This is the power of hope in our life. And here we have Jesus, the Savior, and in eight days we will celebrate his birthday. It brings hope to the world, and, and when we as believers are the ones who, who are to carry out that hope, not only in our own lives, but we carry the message of hope to a lost and unbelieving world. That's why it's so important for us as believers, every single one of us, to be actively sharing our faith with the people who are far from God. And folks, I don't know what 2024 is going to bring, but regardless of what comes in your direction, good or bad, we have a hope because of Jesus. And you can see in your outline, this hope for the future can transform our present. Maybe God is going to use you to be a vessel to bring hope to another person's life when they're drowning. And so let's look at a time in scripture when someone felt like they were losing hope and drowning. Turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14. It's also in your outline. While you're finding that, a little context here. Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 people on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee near the town of Bethsaida. The disciples were astounded and completely blown away by what Jesus has just pulled off. And so Jesus is now going to go spend some alone time with God, and he gives the disciples some directions. Let's pick up the story in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. And here's the crazy part. Walking on the lake. By the way, who does that? Nobody. Except the Lord. Verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. Now it makes total sense to me. Because nobody walks on water. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied. Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. So then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came Toward Jesus. Now, right here in just a matter of minutes is the only time in human history that anybody has ever walked on water. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was terrified and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hands and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This story has all kinds of things that can connect to our lives, and we identify with sinking and losing hope. But for example, it's this idea of, I know I'm sinking in life when I can't see my way, when it's dark. Verse 23 tells us it was very late at night. In the King James Version, 
It tells us it was during the fourth watch. And if you know what that means, it's probably like three o'clock in the morning when Jesus is walking on the water. And so whenever there's this time in our lives when it's mental darkness or where it's perceived darkness and we don't know what the next step is, we just feel like we're drowning. Most of us have been there at some point. I'm sinking when I feel like I'm on my own. Verse 22 tells us that the disciples were without Jesus while they were on the boat. And so whenever you feel alone or when I feel alone or whenever we feel abandoned, it just brings this sinking feeling. Nothing good about feeling rejection, is there? We can also feel like we're sinking when we're out of our comfort zone. We love our comfort zone, don't we, church? Oh, yeah. All right? What, that's why, you know, sleep number, right? What's your sleep number, right? Because that's the thing. We just love our comfort. We don't like things to change. And whenever God changes our situations, it just brings a sense of sinking to our life. Verse 24 tells us, that the disciples were in the middle of the lake rowing the boat, but the wind was against them. So whenever forces beyond your control seem to come against you, or whatever they may be, the proverbial wind, if you will, from this story, it can just be crippling. It could be a relationship, it could be your job, it could be your coworker, your finances, or whatever it is. It brings us to the central idea here, number three in your outline. When I feel like I'm sinking, my hope fades. We all understand this, right? Whenever we're struggling, for example, like if you've ever felt like you've you've given your all to a task and and then you examine the situation only to find out that you're actually moving backwards. Hope seems to fade whenever that happens. It's actually what Peter went through. Verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And we know Jesus saved him. He reached down and pulled him up. But in the times when we're sinking, how are we supposed to respond? How can we respond with hope instead of fading hope? Well, number four in your outline, what should we do when we're sinking? It could also be how, how do you help someone else who is sinking? Well, here's the practical part of today's sermon, everybody. Letter A is have courage because Jesus is with me. This is what Paul says, right? He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin. Why? So that you would become the righteousness of Christ. That as you go through life, and and regardless of what comes against you, good or bad, that, that you would know that God is with you. Jesus, Emmanuel, right? God with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Matthew 14, 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And whenever we pray, whenever we seek God, whenever we connect with him, he begins to overpower the fear of sinking in our lives. He overpowers anxiety and fear. Remember, Jesus is an ever-present help in time of need. We can have courage, my brothers and my sisters. Why? Because Jesus is with us. Are you with me this morning? Okay. Letter B. Stay focused on Christ. 
Stay focused on Jesus. And it doesn't matter if you're a brand new believer in Christ or if you are a seasoned veteran. You cannot go wrong when your eye and when your heart are focused on Jesus. Regardless of how good things are going or how bad things are or whatever turbulence time you may be in right now, listen to me. Stay focused on Christ. Think about this with Peter and Jesus, right? Same water, same boat, same storm, same situation. One second, Peter is both feet out of the boat, walking on water, physically on the Sea of Galilee. A few seconds later, he's sinking. What changed? Verse 30 tells us. Look at it with me again. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. See, prior to him seeing the wind, he wasn't afraid. His eyes were on Jesus. And because of that, he was able to do something extraordinary. Walk on water. I saw a t-shirt one time in San Francisco, of all places, that said, your anxiety is lying to you. Now, I don't know who made that up, but I thought, that's a winner right there. Because there is so much truth to that. If you spend too much time looking at all the surroundings in your life, it can easily overwhelm you and cause anxiety. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. And he put his focus on his surroundings. So the question really becomes for all of us, what are you focusing on? My encouragement to you, stay focused on Jesus. Let her see, don't doubt. So often in life, even for us as believers, we seem to believe our doubts and doubt our beliefs. Let me say that again. We sometimes tend to believe our doubts and doubt our beliefs. Isn't it crazy how that works out? Shouldn't we believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts? This is really an important spiritual issue for all of us. So the question for us at this level is, do we actually believe the word of God to be true? I mean, a lot of us say we do, but do we actually believe it? And in verse 31 of chapter 14, it says this, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. We know that he pulled him up and he said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And see, the admonishment for for believers in this verse really is the second part, why did you doubt? It's not the first part, you of little faith. You see, Jesus acknowledges that Peter at least has some faith. It may be little, but it's, it's some, right? The guys with no faith are where? Back in the boat, scared to death. Peter at least got out of the boat. And he shows us that you can walk on water with just a little bitty bit amount of faith. Peter's issue was with his doubt. So as you sit here today, or you're watching us online from wherever you are at, Jesus is saying plainly to all of us, you just need a little faith. You don't need a ginormous amount of faith. But 
don't doubt me. Trust me, because the minute you doubt me, you're believing your doubt and not believing your beliefs. Now think about that this morning, church. Jesus can change the heart of anyone. Trust him. Don't doubt him. Letter D and we'll wrap up. Praise God. Sounds simple. And it really is. And as we move into 2024, nobody has any idea what's gonna be happening next year. But for you, here's one thing I can promise you. You will do one of two things. You'll either worship or you will worry. But you're not gonna do both. You're not gonna be able to because fear and faith cannot coexist in the same space at the same time. It's impossible. So we all have a choice to make. You can worry about all the things that are coming at you, all the things that you read in the news, all the things that you see on your social media feed, whatever it is that's going on in life, you can get all worked up and start worrying and getting spiritually distracted by the wind in your life, or you can keep your eyes focused on Jesus, keep your eyes focused on God, who has given you the gift of Jesus at Christmas time. And he's given you the gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. And as a result of receiving that gift of righteousness in faith, you will be a son or daughter of the King of Kings. And you will be saved from your sin. And thus you can worship. You can worship a risen king. Jesus, who is Lord of Lords, through whatever storm comes your way. Folks, that is the Christmas story. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came to be with us through everything that comes our way. And we have a choice to praise him or not. Look again at verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Congregation, Jesus is the hope that we need. He's the hope that we have. And in the midst of our trials, Jeremiah brought forth a vision of hope for the people of God. 600 years before Christ was born. The blessing for us today is that we still have that hope. Jesus is the hope of the world. The righteousness of God. And you and I, we are the tool that God is going to use to bring that hope into the world and into our lives and the relationships of our friends and family and everybody else who we know that is far from God. And my prayer for each of you today is that you would be open to being used by the Lord in such a very special, and powerful and meaningful way. Jesus is your personal hope. 
Jesus is my hope. He's our hope. He's the hope of the world. Amen? I'm gonna ask you to stand and pray with me this morning. Father, as we come before you today, God, we open our hearts up, we open our lives up, we open our spirit up to you right now. God, we recognize that that you are our hope. And we're so thankful for Jeremiah's prophecy bringing a vision of hope to us. And we're we're thankful for Jesus and, and him coming at Christmas in the story for the purpose of being our righteousness. So God, as we who are saved in this place right now, we just simply say with a spirit of thanksgiving, thank you. Thank you for saving us. We recognize that in our own sin, we're filthy rags, but it's through your power and through your spirit that you've chosen to shine your light on us. And so we just say, thank you, Jesus. Our prayer today, God, is that you will use us. We, we open our hearts up to be a vessel to shine the light of Christ into a dark world that needs you. You are the hope for that world. So God, we ask that you use us. We open our hearts and our lives up to you today. And congregation, maybe you're here today. You're hearing me talk about Jesus being sin. When he had none, he became sin and he did it for you. And so you're sitting here today, you're listening to my voice and you're thinking, man, I'm I'm not right with God. Well, Jesus came to create that pathway for you. And if today's the day where you wanna make your life right with God, all you need to do is repent and come to him. Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's our goal, is to share that message with you today. And so if that's you, just simply repeat after me in your prayer right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you came. I believe that you died. I believe that you rose again for my sin. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for rising again. Help me to live my life for you the rest of my life. Come into my heart, be my Lord and Savior. And that's where we're at today. And if that's you, we're celebrating that with you today. God, again, we thank you so much for this service that we could get real with you. Be with us in the midst of our pain and sorrow. Thank you for being our vision of hope. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.